Welcome to The Graduates. Today we'll be speaking with our own Carolinist and PhD musicology student Tiffany Ng. Stay tuned. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Cal. You're tuned to University of California and listener-supported KALX Berkeley 90.7. I'm your host, Emily Ellers, a fellow graduate student. This week, we'll be speaking with Tiffany Ng, a graduate student in musicology in Carolinas for our own Sather Tower. As a performer, her work focuses on contemporary and electroacoustic Carolan music, and she recently returned from a string of summer concerts in Europe. At school, she studies music in relation to the visual arts, culture, politics, and religion. Thanks for joining us, Tiffany. Great to be here. All right. Well, before we get into the intangible, more academic stuff, and for our listeners who haven't or may have not seen you play, what's it like to play the Carolan? Well, the carillon is a very athletic instrument. You could call it a full-body workout whenever you perform. I mean, first of all, the carillon is in the top of a tower, so you've got to get up there. Fortunately, we have an elevator, but a lot of carillons don't. And it's played from a keyboard and pedal board, sort of like an organ, except the keyboard is blown up. It's bigger because what you're moving is the clapper of a bell that can weigh, you know, maybe 30 pounds or so. Honestly, can't push it with your pinky the way you would push a key on... The piano. piano. Instead, you play the keyboard with your fists on these giant keys, and it's the same with the pedal board. You play them with your feet so that you can have more power to play the low bell. Now, do very many women play, or is it mostly a male-dominated thing? It's pretty much 50-50 in North America. In Europe, it's much more of a male-dominated profession. And how did you get into it? How long have you been playing the carillon? This is my eighth year of playing the carillon. I got started playing at Yale University, where there's an entirely student-run guild of caroloners. So students teach incoming students and um, take on the responsibilities of a university carillonist. So I really got invested in the profession from an early time. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that playing the carillon is more than just playing bells at 7.50, noon, and 6 o'clock. Can you speak more about the social dynamics of carillon playing? That's actually a really interesting question because the carillon is a public instrument. You're subjecting hundreds of people, maybe your entire zip code, to your music. And so you've got to, of course, cater to a broad range of musical tastes while also trying to maintain your own identity as an artist. It's also difficult to support because as a public instrument, you can't really charge admission to the carillon in most places. So it's very much an instrument that's associated with institutions, either universities universities, churches, or cities. And what about the carillon in relation to visual arts? Well, the carillon is housed in a tower. You've got to build a tower first. And so that to me is very interesting because there are all these architectural styles involved with the carillon, and which I think sort of change the way people perceive the carillon both visually and orally because the carillon might be very high above you. It might be fairly close to the ground. It's also a strange instrument because in general, people can't see you playing. That brings up an interesting point. Is there a difference between playing the carillon in New England or in Europe, like you were doing this summer or here in California? Do the architectural styles of the towers that house the carillons differ? 
The European and American carillons are sort of different creatures. Not only are they housed in very different towers, depending on the country in Europe, but also the keyboards are different. So imagine if every time you had to go to another piano, it was a different size, ever so slightly. You have to learn to adjust just on the spot.、Mm-hmm. So、um, there are also very different repertoires in America because carillons are mostly in universities and parks. It's more of like a, a melodic American sound. Actually, that was developed at UC Berkeley by、mm. our former university carillonist Ronald Barnes, and there's also a lot of space at universities for contemporary music as well. Whereas in Europe, the bells are actually they tend to be pretty old. It's one of the only instruments where you can go and just ask to play an instrument that was built in the 18th century, and they're like, "Yeah, go ahead." <laughs> and so they sound very different. You've got to play more like Baroque music generally on them. Okay. And that's more of a cultural difference. It's cultural, and also just adjusting for the fact that the instrument, the bells, might sustain for a very short time, and、mm-hmm. so you can't just play a really slow piece where <laughs> there's a tremendous amount of space between the sound of each bell. Can you play electroacoustic music on the carillon, or is that just another facet of your work? Um, it takes a lot of work to set up an electroacoustic concert, but it's very worthwhile. First of all, I should explain what electroacoustic music That would is. Be great. It is、um, the combination of both acoustically and electronically produced sounds. The general setup for an electroacoustic concert is to have a couple of microphones near the bells and very powerful speakers in the tower, and so either you're playing along with a pre-recorded taped. Electronic part,、mm-hmm. or you're playing so that the music that you're performing gets fed into the microphones through a computer program such as Max MSP, and then fed out to the speakers. And so that's more of an interactive, like human-computer duet. And then do you ultimately record that to produce the actual archive? Yeah, hopefully you've got another setup outside to record the whole performance.、Okay. Um, but really, what's interesting about electroacoustic carillon performance is the live experience because people just aren't used to hearing. Computer sounds coming out of a tower, and it really gets their attention and highlights the fact that the carillon, despite the fact that it evolved in the 17th century, can be a contemporary instrument as well. Excellent. How many carillon players are there today in the United States? Maybe a couple hundred at okay, most,、wow. and certainly、wow. less than a thousand in the world. And there's only a handful who perform electroacoustic music regularly.、Mm-hmm. You're listening to the graduates on University of California and listener-supported KALX ninety point seven. I'm here with Tiffany Ng, a graduate student in musicology. Now, Tiffany, can you speak a little bit about the history of the bells? I find the carillon to be a really interesting part of、um, identity in both America and in Europe, particularly as it relates to identity、um, at universities in America. One of my colleagues, Kim Schaefer, who is a PhD student at UT Austin, is writing about the carillon at mid-century America at universities、mm-hmm. and how that helped both informing like nostalgic student identities and、um, socio-cultural relations. And in Europe as well, it was very Very much a nationalistic instrument in Belgium and the Netherlands, and bells in general. For example,、um, in France, in 18th century France, bells were a very, very strong marker of civic identity, even amongst small towns and villages. So there was this whole phenomenon of townspeople going to other towns and stealing bells. <laughs> It became very competitive. Because bells were a symbol of、um, pride, and they also regulated daily life. I mean, before there were 
personal watches for everybody. Um, the way that people working in the fields would tell time would be to listen for the Angelus bell in the morning and um, listening for the ringing of the hours. Mm-hmm. Well, bells here certainly regulate time. Do other universities have a carillon like There are a lot more carillons on the East Coast located at universities. And I think that's because there's more of a European sense of heritage to the universities and churches there. Um, But a lot of churches and universities also just have synthesized bells. They put speakers up in the towers and play these bell sounds back. And I think it relates back to this idea of identity and tradition in the public soundscape. And I mean, I'm talking about, you know, very positive ideas of like being all, you know, university community and whatever. But there are also more sinister ideas of like regulating time and controlling society to a certain degree through all of these bell signals. There's still a certain degree to which um, the ringing of the bell, I mean, signifies that class is about to begin or end. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not a person who goes up there every hour to ring the bell. It is automated. Uh. (laughs) A lot of people don't realize that a person is actually playing the noon concerts, for example, because they can't see the performer. Mm-hmm. And so a question I do get asked is like, well, you know, those those noon concerts, those are played by computer, right? But then when they come upstairs and meet me, then they say, oh, do you run up every hour to play the hour <laughs> ring? Well, if one, then the other. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, who plays them here at Cal? Is it mostly students or do we have a professional university carillonist? Yes, um, there are fewer than 10 full-time carillon jobs in North America. And one of them is at Berkeley. Yay. So we've got a university carillonist. His name is Jeff Davis. And we have a staff. So there are a couple more part-time professional caroliners. Mm -hmm. And then Jeff teaches a couple of students each semester for credit. And then sometimes there's also a decal class offered where his students can teach people who just want to play for a semester. Mm -hmm. Is there a decal class this semester that people can sign up for or when's the next one? I think the next decal class will be offered in the springtime because of the uh, spire renovations that are happening right That's right. How is that? contributed to your ease or disease of playing the Well, I mean, (laughs) there's very few visitors to the tower now because it's all scaffolded off and the hours are limited. So it's, there's a high premium on practice time right now. Okay. When's your next concert? When are we going to hear electroacoustic music or? Well, um, commissioning new pieces and especially electroacoustic pieces is one of my avocations. So I'm working with a couple of composers in the music department, Mm -hmm. also people who work at Sinmat. And so we're working on a concert hopefully for late spring where we'll have electroacoustic live music and possibly also video projection onto the tower. Can't wait. Excellent. I'm also playing at the dedication festival of a carillon in Oslo next summer. And so I'm hoping that'll also be a chance for me to premiere a bunch of these pieces that I've commissioned from young composers here. Excellent. Excellent. Well, can you talk about other areas of your work beyond carillon playing? Well, the carillon actually ties pretty conveniently into a lot of other musicological topics. Um, For example, into historical keyboards, the carillon is one of them. So I I'm very interested in exploring the relationships between the carillon, the organ, the harpsichord, and how they tended to share repertoires and players and builders, instrument builders as well. And I'm also very interested in public soundscapes. And so 
other public instruments, for example, the um, the barrel organ. What's a barrel organ? Like a portable organ, it tends to be something that people wind up. So public music such as that, but also other kinds of sounds. I mean, for example, the emergency alert system that happens every Wednesday, the first Wednesday of each month at noon. How does that tie into discourses of um, public sound? Carillons tend to be high security spaces at universities, which are very concerned about liability, people Mm -hmm. falling out of the tower. And think back to when there was a sniper shooting out of the Carillon Tower at UT Austin. So there's also this idea of like the supernatural and death that can emerge from towers as well. And so I think that has a really interesting relationship to this other public sound, which is pretty much the only thing that also reaches across the entire campus sonically. And that happens to be the emergency alert system. (laughs) I don't know if I'm onto something or if this is crazy, but (laughs) I think there's a relationship there as well. And can you also relate that to street musicians? I mean, the scale is obviously completely different on the people that you can reach through a tower and the people you reach just on the street. Sure, yeah. I mean, not only is their range of sonic projection different, but they're possibly also speaking to different social groups. To a certain degree, there's this utopian association with the carillon as like music for everybody and art for everybody. But the fact is that even when you're arranging like a a pop song, which oftentimes we did at Yale, to play on the carillon, still you're playing for a certain audience, certain people who will recognize it. It may be in a certain musical style that doesn't feel accessible to everybody. So there's very interesting notions of like this being an absolutely public instrument and yet somehow still exclusive stylistically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And speaking of sonic projections, what kind of music or what genres, what, what styles of music do the Carolinists here at Cal play? Well, a lot of Carillon repertoire gets played here. And then I know that some of the students occasionally arrange things from the Beatles and whatever else. So they like to do that because that gets, you know, other students excited. I know they also play um, Cal songs at football games. (laughs) But because it's an academic program, Mm -hmm. um, the students are studying to play the carillon. So they tend to learn the serious music. Yes. Well, and what happens when you screw up? Have you ever... Oh, Made sure. A mistake you and... screw up all the time. <laughs> Nobody can tell. <laughs> well, you screw up and you, you have to deal with it and learn not to be deterred by stage fright. Piano teachers often tell their students or who, you know, teachers of any instrument tell their students, well, in a recital, you've got to just play through your mistakes. And that's especially important on the carillon <laughs> because people might not even notice that you're playing until you make a mistake and you stop. So you can't stop. <laughs> Yeah, it's also nice though because you're invisible usually, and so that takes a lot of pressure off Mm -hmm. of you. Mm -hmm. So if you're a musician out there and you have stage fright, try out the carillon. It's so public, and yet it's still a private experience. You're listening to the Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Cal. Today I'm speaking with Tiffany Ng, a musicology graduate student. Now at the beginning of the show, you briefly mentioned culture and the Carillon. Can you speak a little bit more about gender and how gender and the Carillon interact? Or how they have traditionally interacted? 
Carillon was certainly until maybe the mid-20th century or later considered a man's instrument because it required a tremendous amount of force to play. If you look at historical accounts of Carillon playing in the 17th and 18th centuries, most writers tend to focus if they've been to the tower and seen the Caroliner on the sort of gross amount of bodily effort and expenditure that's going on and how it seems to be for so little benefit because people don't see how much effort goes into the making of the music. So it wasn't until the early 20th century that one woman named Adèle Colson tried to enroll in the Belgian Carillon School and get her diploma. She did graduate, but never was able to find a job and ripped up her diploma because she was so frustrated. So she was the, she was the earliest pioneer. Well, she was an early pioneer. And it's very interesting to look at visual records of the carillon from the early 20th century, too, in Belgium and the Netherlands, because they depict the carillon almost as this cyborgian extension of a man's body. So he's like playing, and you can see the bells sort of almost ringing out of the tower and sound waves like physically emerging from the carillon. And it's just depicted as this extraordinarily macho instrument. And there's also this idea of playing the carillon as loud as possible. So you're increasing your sound perimeter and therefore like sonic um, area of control. So there's all these very interesting issues of gender uh, mixed up with the early carillon in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. When did it become a mainstream instrument or acceptable for women to play? I don't know exactly when women became regularly involved with the carillon in Europe. I wonder if there's still a legacy, this sort of visual culture legacy of the carillon being a man's instrument that has discouraged women from taking more professional positions in the European carillon world. There's only a handful who hold official positions in Europe. In America, one of the very earliest caroloners was a woman. And so it's been much more equal from the start. A reflection <laughs> of culture, perhaps. <laughs> Um, Tiffany, can you talk about some of the collaborations you do with other musicians? How do you get people to arrange songs for you? Well, it's really exciting to take composers to the carillon because it's a slightly different instrument from anything else. First of all, they're really excited to have such a large audience. But second of all, bells actually have a totally different overtone series from every other instrument. Um, their upper harmonics include a very prominent minor third, which gives them the sort of mournful sound, but also the sort of out-of-tune sound that a lot of people notice about them. And so composers latch onto that immediately and are very interested in how to manipulate these strange overtones to in contemporary music. So I've gotten some wonderful pieces that play with the overtones and even just let the overtones ring and uh, beat against each other into the silences between musical phrases. And those have really captured the attention of audiences, even audiences who normally don't listen to any contemporary music. And also electroacoustic pieces. I found one particularly interesting one was Stephen Rice's piece, Zimbelstern, and it plays with the idea of mechanical musical instruments by emulating an organ stop that has a bunch of bells on a disc, and the disc turns, and one little stick beats on each of them. And so the carillonist actually plays a pattern to imitate being a Zimbelstern, but the carillon goes into and out of adjustment by an assistant, and so sometimes the notes 
notes don't sound at all, and furthermore, the noise of playing at the keyboard, which is actually quite loud, gets amplified the out hammering. to the audience. Yeah. yeah, and so that invisible experience of watching the carol on air becomes somewhat audible outside because you can hear all of that inside noise that is usually just locked up inside the playing cabin. So it's a very interesting dichotomy between inside and outside that gets mixed up there. You're tuned to The Graduates. We're speaking with Tiffany Ng, the Carolinist here at Sather Tower. So now I understand you spent this summer traveling Europe and playing at different Carolines. Yeah. How did, how did you set that up and what did you do? Well, a lot of people ask me if I have an agent. And the fact is that the Carolan world is so small, we all know each other. <laughs> so I, I just set up my concerts individually and... It's, I don't necessarily make a profit off of my concert tours, but this is my fourth one in Europe. And I generally tend to break even and I get to travel and meet new people. So that's all I can ask for. And going to carillons in Europe can be really fun, especially in the old churches. In the Netherlands, for example, you sometimes have to climb up these rickety stairs that are almost as steep as ladders, then turn over maybe 180 degrees to squeeze yourself through some tiny opening, and then climb up some more ladders, and there's dust and spiderwebs everywhere. Then finally you get to the top, and it's there's hardly enough room to stand up, maybe. But... <laughs> Then you emerge at the top, and all of a sudden you're seeing the city from the top of the tower that nobody usually goes into. So it's an extraordinary experience to just see city after city from the top of a tower. So where did you go? This summer I went to England and Germany and Switzerland. And it was actually really exciting because in Germany I played at a concert in Hanover. The Carillon there is located in this uh, sort of convent that's associated with a hospital. So it was basically a bunch of like nuns and patients and elderly folk listening to me. And I played mostly new music and they were really into it. And they told me they had never had a new music concert there in the 49 years that the Carillon has been there. Wow. So, And they were my most receptive audience. So you, you never have any idea how people will react. Well, and you don't know at the time that you're playing how they're reacting, do you? Is there any feedback between you and the audience? Can you tell who's listening? It's very hard. Yeah. Usually there's not so much of a feedback loop with the outside environment when you're playing the Carillon. I mean, if you're a musician in a concert hall, you still get some early echoes. You, you get the ambience and the acoustic of the concert hall. Mm-hmm. When you're playing the carillon, the bells just go outside and you have no control whatsoever of, how, of what other ambient noises are going on, how people are reacting. And it's just a strange concert setting too because people might be sitting together. They might not be. They're all staring at a tower that doesn't move. <laughs> or they're not. They're chit-chatting. You don't know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah so I, I like to say that there's this strange phenomenon of an almost split self for the caroliner. You're always trying to be present, trying to be aware of how the carillon reacts to your body and your physical actions. But your mind is always somewhere on the ground trying to imagine what the carillon sounds like for your audience and how loud you have to play in order to be heard. And even just how the balance of the bells reaches the ground because higher frequencies tend to dissipate. So you have to play the higher bells maybe a little bit louder to make sure they're heard. In a sense, it's very frustrating. But it's the same for organists, too, when they're playing in a large church. I mean, at the Riverside Cathedral in New York City, some of the stops are a block away. I mean, a New York City block away. So you don't hear them for a split second. There's a difference of a split second before 
what you do and how they react happens. It's an instrument that requires some imagination on the part of the musician. I mean, all musical instruments do, but <laughs> this is a special kind of imagination. Especially apparent, yeah. So after Hanover and the Nuns, where would you? Where did you go? Well, I played a number of concerts in England after、mm-hmm. that, and. A lot of the carillons in England aren't that well maintained, even though most of our carillon tradition came over from England. And the reason for that is because swinging bells are very popular there. Change ringing is the national pastime, and there's forty <laughs> thousand change ringers or something over there. So there's no room really for the carillon in their culture, but there are a couple.、Uh-huh. Change ringing is really fun to watch because instead of one person playing some complex peal of bells, it's all these people. People who are having to compensate for the fact that each bell takes、um, a certain amount of force and a certain amount of delay to sound. So it's it's an extraordinary musical pastime slash sport. Are there <laughs> any places over、um, in the United States where change ringing is popular? Change ringing never really made it to North America. There's a set at、um, Washington National Cathedral. I'm not sure where else there might be. Yeah,、changing. I mean it's just interesting because earlier we spoke about bells being a reflection of culture or a, a symbol. Yeah,、um, so there so. are very different traditions.、Mm-hmm. In Italy, there's a totally、um, separate. Uh, swinging bell tradition, and in some places they actually are very athletic about it. Like they'll swing the bell and then get it to turn over 360 degrees, and somehow manage to hop on top of it as well, which is potentially a lethal activity. <laughs> There have definitely been documented cases throughout history of bell ringers getting killed. With oh my gosh, who knew? Who knew our own Carolinas endangering herself every time she plays. Now, Tiffany, can you speak a little bit about the future of the carillon? It seems like a very antiquated musical instrument. There's actually an extraordinary set of English bells at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, just across from the Fairmont Hotel,、um, that could easily be a carillon if they simply installed a proper carillon keyboard on it. Right now, it's played from a sort of electronic keyboard, and so there's no expression to、mm-hmm. it whatsoever. The bells just sort of get crushed by each hammer.、Um, so one day, I would like to see that turned into a real carillon as well.、Mm-hmm. Now they've been doing a lot of construction on the tower this fall. When will it be fully open? Visit,、It's, check out the bells. Well, the tower is still open、um, oh, okay. during public hours. They're reduced a little bit this week, but they'll expand again, I think, to normal hours. So the best time to go is at twelve noon, because that's when you can actually stand outside the playing cabin and watch someone playing the bells. And it's just a totally different experience than when you're standing at the foot of the tower and there's all this ambient noise. When you're right underneath the bells, it's sort of a visceral experience, especially、mm-hmm. when the low bells sound. So it's <laughs> it's a must see. On campus. Excellent. For more information, if people want to learn more about Car- the Carillon or or the Carillon here at Berkeley, where can they go? One of one place to go would be、uh, gcna dot org. That's the website of the Guild of Caroliners in North America. For composers, anyone out there, there is、uh, currently a carillon composition competition going on. Excellent. There are generally not that many entries because it's a slightly obscure instrument, so this is a very good、uh, competition to enter. And、um, you can learn more about the carillon there. Also at carillon dot org. Carillon is spelled C A R I L L O N.、Mm-hmm. So、um, that is an index of 
all the carillons in the world. And so that's very helpful if you are wondering if the bells you heard in your hometown might be a real carillon and you can go visit. Because caroliners generally tend to feel like their jobs are a little bit lonely. So they're just totally excited when people are interested in coming. That's excellent. That's excellent. Um, all right. Well, then we'll stay tuned for your co- upcoming concert this spring and hopefully get a little taste of the electroacoustic sound here at Cal. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, and thank you for joining me. Thank you. You've been listening to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research on Mondays from 12 until 12.30 on KALX 90.7. My name is Emily Eller. Special thanks to Carmen Mitchell for editing today's show. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And if you have any comments or ideas for future guests, please don't hesitate. Feel free to email me at graduates.kalx at gmail.com.